You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. We're so glad to have you here. So if this is your first time watching the show, where have you been all your life? This is the place to be. But anyway, as I said, welcome to Changing Reality. We are a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So through this show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, uh, thought leaders, industry experts, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world and from right here on the Pen Camp. And this is part of our very special, I would say, series or this one's team where we're actually interviewing amazing professors from the Penn and Wharton campus as well to have their stories out there for you guys to learn from as well. So I am a true believer in the power of stories. I believe that by hearing these inspiring stories on how everyday people are changing the reality around them, we get to pick up these little nuggets of wisdom that could help lead, uh, or at least hopefully help us in our own lives in a way and help us craft those paths for our own selves. And I wanted to do the show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I want to uncover those stories so that you and I can learn from them and use them as the stepping stone to the things that we want to do. So personally, to show you how much I believe in stories, in a sense, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance, which is a social enterprise back home in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that today collaborates not just with our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but actually works with over 28 different countries to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning sessions that help them discover what they love doing, learn about themselves in the world around them and start their own careers while we're, while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact not just for themselves but for those around them as well and today we've been lucky to work with over 35,000 students from 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old themselves and the basis for all of that has been stories has been listening to people from different points of view, from different uh, levels of experience in a way, and being able to, to contextualize that in our own lives and build on the lessons that they've gone through. So just like that, I hope that this show is that same platform for all of you, that by listening to this, you can figure out a little bit more about yourself and you can figure out how what this means in context of your own journey. So if you want to talk about anything specific, if there are any topics that you want to address or any people you want to speak to, do let me know in the comments below. You can let us, uh, you can recommend stuff and we'll try our best to make it happen. So today's speaker is someone who is absolutely amazing. We have a professor from Wharton who actually studies hybrid ventures, which are organizations that combine related but potentially contradictory aims at their core in sense. So think, for example, of social enterprises, which on one hand are amazing, they create huge social impact, but also have their business objectives and they are to an extent for profits in a sense. Though we also have examples from nanotechnology, where startups are organized around uh, scientific discovery, but also technological commercialization. So he focuses on really looking at these uh, intersections between multiple or conflicting aims in that organizations, in a sense. 
and he works with them or um, because obviously these are the organizations of the future to research on how these hybrid organizations emerge while they attract their resources and how they positively affect society so the list and uh, rewards and accolades for his research and work are plentiful from the research impact on practice award that recognizes a piece of contemporary peer review research that has important implications for practice back in 2017 to the inaugural iacmr presidential award in 2018 and he's even won several best paper awards including uh being recognized as the best paper at the 13th annual social entrepreneurship conference and as I said, the list of the many, um, I would say, recognitions that he has received has gone on and on. He's been featured in Forbes, many great publications. And just like that, he's on our show today to take your questions, to share his experiences with you guys. So without further ado, let's welcome our amazing guest speaker for today, Professor Tyler. Hello. Hi, Professor. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Harsha, how are you? All right, can't complain. I guess we're entering summer, so that is always a great thing. Oh, even though I'm actually from a tropical country, so it's technically summer all year round for me wherever I go. But yeah. <laughs> and I'm from northern Canada, so it's the opposite for me. So it's winter like nine months of the year where I'm from. So, you know, even this uh, sort of stilted uh, entry into summer we're having in Philadelphia still feels pretty good to me. So, okay, good. I I'm going to completely backtrack from our conversation just to focus on that in a second. So, how is summer like you like where you're from in Canada in a sense is it still you know a little cold or do you at least get some sunshine so you definitely get sunshine so it's so far north you get a lot of daylight right oh, and so yeah. the days are very long and I mean you know a good summer day the high will get up to about like you know 80 degrees and so it's really great but it's really short, right? Like you only have like, you know, two months of it tops, like July, August, and then, uh, you know, you're back into the fall. Uh, and there's also mosquitoes, which are not great. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, everyone goes outside and it's uh, it's really wonderful for a couple of months, but, you know, the rest of the year, it's, uh, it's dark, cold, and a little bit tough. Okay. Again, I, I'm completely like, like the audience is going to be terribly disappointed for not jumping into the crazy social entrepreneurship thing. But I've got to ask, so how is a typical day in like winter for you? Like, like growing up, would you like, is there complete darkness or like, like explain to the audience who are as dumb as I am and as less traveled as I am? Yeah. Oh, you're, you're not dumb. And I'm sure you're very widely traveled. Uh, you know, very few reasons to go to where I grew up in Edmonton, <laughs> Canada. I mean, a great place to be from, I always say, right? Like it was a good community to grow up in. And, I, you know, I'm also happy that I, you know, got out in later life. Um, it's, uh, you know, winter's tough, you know. Um, you would wake up and it would be dark and you'd go to school and, you know, you'd be inside all day. And then by like 4 p.m. it'd be dark again. So, you know, you'd have very cold, not much light. Um, a lot of people struggled with seasonal affective disorder. So, you know, you get one of these uh, these sad lamps and it, uh, you know, shoots little rays of vitamin D at you instead of getting normal sunlight and, uh, you know, you muddle through. Very Game of Thrones winter is coming vibe and uh, very scary for those who have never experienced winter like me. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll brace myself if we ever go and visit. But very interesting. I'll visit in the summer if you go. It's lovely in the summer. Winter, <laughs> stay away. Yeah. 
stay away. Okay, just out of the travel plans. Got it. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of, of where you're from, in a sense, uh, before we jump into all of the heavy stuff, I always like to talk a little bit about how you actually got interested in the stuff that you are doing right now. And I actually heard from somewhere that you actually heard about entrepreneurship, got into, or at least got interested in it at a very young age while you were still in school, if I'm not mistaken. How, how in this, and I'm imagining now this cold and, and scary and barren days, how did you come across entrepreneurship and, or at least think about it as something that you wanted to pursue? You know, if I look way back to my youth, um, I was interested in entrepreneurship because I saw it as a way to get rich. Uh, and so, you know, my mom had this book, still has it somewhere. And it was like, you know, every year, you know, what do your kids want to do when they grow up? Why do they want to do it? And she showed me mine. And it was like, you know, I started off like I wanted to be a firefighter or a policeman or some sort of a community helper. Uh, and then when I turned about eight or nine, I was like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be in finance because I want to be rich. Uh, <laughs> and so didn't come to entrepreneurship from the most sort of noble motives, um, but got really interested in, you know, sort of the web 1.0, how you could, you know, like take an audience online, uh, monetize it, raise capital and, uh, you know, hopefully flip it for some money. And so when I was, you know, undergrad, uh, you know, doing my first degree, uh, that's what I was really focused on. So my grades were terrible. I almost never went to class. I was always just trying to start something. And so, you know, had a few that got up off the ground, but I was just, I mean, I, I was ignorant in every way of the process, right? Like I was ignorant about how you create a venture. And I was also ignorant to the fact that trying to create like a VC grade venture in Northern Canada, there's just a mismatch, right? Because there's no ecosystem <laughs> to support that. So you know, there's no VCs to talk to. There's no investment forthcoming. You know, we raised some friends and family money, but uh, you know, the burn rate was really high and, you know, we couldn't, you know, ever get to, uh, you know, anything that justified the, uh, you know, the initial cash outlay. Um, yeah, so I, I, I came to it as a, an instrumental, uh, you know, profit seeker <laughs> and, uh, you know, made a, a reasonable run at it, even if, uh, you know, didn't end up, uh, you know, meeting that goal of getting rich. This is a very ironic story. I am very confused. I'm sure the audience is as well, because now you focus a lot on social entrepreneurship uh, and, and, and kind of like these, as we said a little bit in your intro, conflicting, I would say, aims within business organizations. So we mentioned nanotech, which has this amazing scientific kind of, um, I would say, impact, and then social entrepreneurship, which of course gets right to the ground, really has that sort of that, that ESG kind of impact. So how did you kind of flip from entrepreneurship to social entrepreneurship in a sense? It is a small, I would say, meander in terms of the word, but a huge meander in terms of, of actually the way you think about it. So what's were you struck by lightning? What happened? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I think it was always really latent in me. So, you know, I was always a really empathetic person uh, and I always wanted to do things that help people. Uh, but there was that period in my life where I sort of viewed these as, you know, different parts of myself. Right. So there was like the the charitable part, you know, involved in the church, um, you know, different philanthropies. Uh, then there was the business side, which was, you know, let's just get rich. Um, and I, I sort of I kept them apart for a long time, you know, like parallel paths. And, uh, you know, I'd specialize on one or the other, but in different sort of segments of my life. Um, what really sort of brought me to this moment where I realized that just 
entrepreneurship for the sake of making money wasn't going to be something that was how I actually wanted to spend my life. Uh, was working on a venture and I had a, a co-founder who, I mean, in retrospect, he is probably a sociopath. I mean, entrepreneurship does tend to attract a lot of people who are sociopathic, um, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, and, and he was just the kind of person who would, you know, step on your neck if he thought that it would get him ahead. And it left a really bad taste in my mouth. So I, I got out of that venture and I thought, you know, if I can't do something with my life that brings these two pieces of what I want to accomplish together, then it, it, it's not going to be, you know, the fulfilling sort of journey I want to be on. And so I made this very thoughtful pivot uh, to try and use business for a force for good. And so I uh, got linked up with the Canadian Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Um, you know, I sat on their board of advisors for a number of years. We started a social enterprise incubator. Um, nothing big ever came out of it, but it was a good exposure to people who were, you know, a few steps ahead of me on the growth curve, uh, the personal growth curve, and really trying to use venture as a source for good. And I actually, I keep in touch with some of those people that I met back then, uh, you know, and a few of them have you know, since then done really amazing things, even if, you know, the incubator had no treatment effect in practice. Um, yeah. And so it just got me thinking, you know, it, there's got to be a, a better way to use business than just this tool for profit seeking for private gain, private wealth creation. Uh, and it was a great move. I mean, it's been a, a really fulfilling path to be on. And it's obviously, you know, landed me somewhere I never thought I would be, which is, you know, as a professor, I mean, I never thought I'd be an academic. It was so far down on my list. Uh, but studying how this stuff works and trying to, you know, create an impact by helping people who are on the front lines now. No, oh, that's an amazing story. And I totally agree about how fulfilling uh, an amazing social entrepreneurship is. I remember I was in this conference, one on, on social entrepreneurship, and this person just came out there and they said, social enterprise should not exist. And I, and not just me, I think the whole audience was like, why? Why, why shouldn't it? And they were like, well because all businesses should be social businesses and, and nobody should think any different from it in a sense, because that, that sets kind of like the, the, the objectives of, of, of having some impact in the community way up there. So, so definitely something that I believe in strongly and um, hope, will hopefully not be shocked by any conference goers and speakers anytime soon into being into tricked into believing people thought differently in a sense. Tell me, and, and you mentioned that, that being a professor is, uh, was not on the list of things. Oh gosh, that's terrible. Where did it rank before or after firefighter? I'm very confused. But um, I, I read somewhere you actually quoted that the, the life of a in academia is similar to that of venture in a sense that you that you think through the venture, you, you work on it, and then you bring it into, into creation in a sense. How did you end up in, in this path of, a, of kind of becoming a professor, doing the research, if it wasn't something that you intended to do in a sense? Tell, tell me a bit about that portion of your journey. Yeah, I mean, it came from a realization uh, of my own ignorance. Um, you know, I don't think I learned a ton from all of the failures I had when I was trying to just be a profit-seeking entrepreneur. Uh, but I did realize that I had a lot to learn. So, you know, it sort of it, it pushed me down that path. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, you know, sort of social enterprise thing, I need to learn more about like how you do it, both on the social side and on the business side. And so uh, I started looking for MBA programs that had both of those features, you know, sort of embedded in them. And I couldn't find anything. I mean, I think the only place I found HBS was doing some stuff back in the day where if you you know went into the nonprofit charitable sector after graduating they 
do some like tuition forgiveness or something. <laughs> Um, but it wasn't like it is now where there, you know, there is more infrastructure around social enterprise and, you know, impact and all of these things. And so I thought, well, okay, what I'll do is I'll hack something together. I'll do a master's degree in sociology to try and, you know, get a better fix on the impact piece. Uh, and then I'll do an MBA to, you know, get a better fix on how to actually be a, a successful entrepreneur. And so I did my MA, which was a research degree. And I, I really liked research. Um, you know, I liked ideas. I like thinking deeply and narrowly about things. Um, and I just kind of caught the bug. And so uh, when I finished that, I thought, okay, well, instead of an MBA, maybe I'll do a PhD because that seems to be something, you know, it sort of aligns with what I find fulfilling. Uh, and the, I mean, still the plan was never to be a professor. I just wanted to, you know, deepen my knowledge. <laughs> Um, actually, the only thing that I was ever a part of launching that, uh, you know, succeeded, I did during my PhD. Um, but that's a whole different story. Um, but yeah, did my PhD and, uh, it had a pretty strong treatment effect on me because they, you know, if they're going to invest in you as a student, they want you to go out and get an academic job. Uh, and then ended up going on the, you know, the academic job market, uh, when I was close to graduation and then I got hired at Wharton. And by the time that happened, it was like, okay, well, I guess this is happening. You know, <laughs> I should probably just lean in. Um, you know, I'm still not 100%. Like, since the best business school in the world offered me a job, I guess I'll give it a shot. That was the thought process. Yeah, I mean, it sounds crazy, but yeah. It was, you know, I was talking with my my wife about it. Um, and I was like, you know, I think this sounds kind of interesting. You know, we'll have to move to Philadelphia. And she was, that was an interesting conversation. Um, but I was like, you know, if I don't do this, I'll probably regret it and probably won't have many more on ramps, you know, to have the chance again. Um, yeah. And so, you know, did it and, you know, I've been here for 10 years, got tenure. Uh, yeah. So it's going to be uh, a long-term plan now. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm glad they got to you before. Like, I don't know any other university could like, thankfully we have you to set other social entrepreneurs on the right path so that they don't have to. I don't know, figure and mix and match stuff on their own. Tell, tell me a bit about that initial, I would say, since there wasn't much of a, of a that focus on social entrepreneurship, kind of a like path at that point of time. How did you go about deciding what you wanted to do your dissertation on? How do you decide like what you wanted to really focus on in those initial stages? I know you did, I think, one of your initial papers on nanotechnology, correct me again if I'm wrong, but how did that even, like, that's not something that a normal person thinks like, hmm, I'm going to I'm going to think about nanotechnology today. So how did those ideas come to you at that very early stage? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, a lot of people were a part of the journey. Uh, so I'd like to say, you know, there's some epiphany and I thought, oh, nanotechnology, that's the thing. And I started doing research and writing on nanotech. But I mean, it was uh, it was much more embedded in the environment I was in doing my Ph.D. Um, so, I mean, in terms of my overall orientation in life, um, I sort of view it as setting a loose vector. So I'm going in a general direction I'm happy with, but then I try and be, you know, opportunistic and sort of open to, you know, the different things that are, you know, you know, come to you in the environment that are not part of the plan. And so when I was doing my PhD, I was always interested in doing something around like ESG, corporate social responsibility, social entrepreneurship. And I ended up working with this really brilliant uh, supervisor named Mike Lounsbury, who uh, you know I still keep in touch with. 
Uh, and he had a grant uh, to study nanotechnology. So he was recruited from Cornell and uh, the university I was at, University of Alberta, you know, the only way they could get him was to, you know, just basically give him a blank check to study nanotechnology as a part of the Canadian government's initiative to you know, try and understand like the social side of nanotech. So it didn't become like the next genetically modified <laughs> organism kind of thing, right? Where there's all this public backlash. And uh, so because Mike had this huge grant and I was his student, he said if that I wanted to study nanotech, I could just have like a blank check to do research with him. And I thought, well, this sounds really good. <laughs> Um, and you know, all it takes is a, a little bit of abstraction theoretically to see how the underlying principles also relate to something like social enterprise, right? So in nanotech, you have these startup firms that are doing like scientific research, but also trying to commercialize, uh, and these goals don't always play nicely together, right? There's different incentives, there's different, uh, you know, funding structures. Um, and in terms of how they hit the market, it's different as well. Uh, so it's, it's a lot like a social enterprise where you have social and financial goals and you got to find a way to make them play nice and, you know, not create tensions that tear the organization apart. And so, you know, it ended up being a good move. Mike and I published a few things off the nanotech data, um, even though it was never like a context that I was in love with. Um, but it gave me a chance to, you know, work on theoretical ideas, you know, in an environment where I wasn't struggling for resources. Uh, that then could really set the foundation to be applied to something like social enterprise, which is much more sort of, you know, enriching and fulfilling as a, as a context to study for me. Amazing. And I and I like how you you kind of use those foundations, as you said, and, and kind of applied them in the work that you do in social enterprise. So let, let's move a little bit on, on the timeline of the journey. So you're at Wharton, you, you, you come to this brilliant, beautiful campus and you meet these horrible teenagers joking, we're amazing, like, right? Um, and you meet these hopefully, um, I would say, brilliant students in a sense. Since you never wanted to be a professor, how were your first few classes in a sense of, of really figuring out how, like what you wanted to deliver and how you wanted to get that across? Was I'm sure that's something that comes naturally from you uh, and, and that you're amazing at, but when you first started, what was kind of like your initial approach to it in a way? <laughs> it's fun to think back to it. I mean, I mean, fun, but also sort of horrifying because, uh, you know, you say that I must have been, you know, a natural at it and I wasn't at all. Um, I always sort of liked the idea of teaching, uh, but until you start as a professor, you don't get a lot of experience doing it. Uh, and then I didn't quite understand what I was walking into at Wharton. Um, so the only little bit of teaching experience I'd had was undergrads at the University of Alberta which is, you know, it's where I went. You're it's a nice, great, school. smart people, not the atrocious little, no, okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different draw, right? It's a, it's a regional university, you know, it's probably the best one in, I mean, Western Canada, the prairies at least. Uh, but it's not the same sort of like international draw as a place like, you know, Penn or Harvard, MIT, Stanford, right? Where you're really getting like the international elite coming in. And so I thought, well, as long as I'm one class ahead of the students, I'll you know do my lectures and they'll love me and this will be great. Uh, and it turns out that was not the case. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, my teaching evaluations in the first year weren't awful, but you know, there, there was a couple of comments like this guy should get fired. Like I can't believe Penn standards have slipped this far. <laughs> it was it was kind of a sobering moment for me. Um, 
so in terms of what I was teaching, it was entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I was teaching, uh, you know, stuff that I had the academic background with. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wasn't as exposed to the finance side at that time. And so, you know, a lot of the students had some pretty strong opinions about, you know, private equity, venture capital. And I said some, you know, derogatory things from my personal experience, which was very limited, but, you know, definitely uh, crystallizing. Um, yeah. And so they didn't like that. Um, but it's uh, gotten a lot better since. Uh, and I really do enjoy teaching. Uh, the undergrads at Penn especially are just so bright, curious, earnest, hardworking. I mean, there, there's variance, of course. I mean, some students are just a massive pain in the ass. But in general, <laughs> just wonderful people to work with. Uh, and so I really do like it. No, oh, that's amazing to hear. And I'm sure all the undergrads listening to this are probably just going to try to be better and nicer in their evaluations after this to their professors. <laughs> I, I sincerely doubt that. <laughs> okay. I, I, I hope that's my sincere hope for this episode. At the very least, guys, be a little bit nicer. If I got that, I'd cry like straight away. Uh, tell me a bit about <laughs> how, well, one of the conversations I was having with, with, with in the series that we're doing to bring professors is there's well, on the previous episode, someone said very interesting, which is every professor has their own style in a sense. And that's something that they form from kind of the trial by fire of working with people or students specifically, and it evolves as they teach in a sense. How do you start to figure out what your style is um, in, in terms of like the way that you work with students, the way that you, you conduct those classes? And I'm sure this wasn't something that you consciously thought of like, oh, today I will implement this way of speaking or anything. But how do you come about kind of like finding that that, that middle ground or, or at least that the, the, the space where you are now where you actually have amazing classes? I know that you you had this, ex, uh, this thing where you even give like, was it $20 that you invest in students? And then they, they turn that into like actual like, like profit making or profit generating ideas. So you do so many cool stuff. How do you actually start bringing those out and thinking about that and incorporating that into your teaching? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that came out of uh, my experience in the first year, because in that first year, I just took the syllabus of the person who had taught the class before me, uh, you know, dusted it off. And, uh, you know, I was really teaching someone else's content. And I think, you know, that was part of the reason why it wasn't a great experience for me or the students. So then after that, I started, you know, thinking more entrepreneurially about like what I could do in the class, which would be, you know, interesting for the students, but also, you know, fun for me. And so, you know, that was sort of the genesis of the uh, the five dollar venture creation thing. What was it? It was a while ago I did that. Yeah, it's either five or twenty. But anyway, you know, a tiny bit of startup capital and seeing what students can turn it into. Um, you know, bringing activities into the classroom. I don't love case teaching, so I don't do a lot of that. Um, you know, I prefer to have people just work on on ventures and have that be like a live case. Um, but then I think, you know, sort of like the, the biggest stylistic change for me over the years has been to kind of get out of my own way when it comes to evaluating ventures. And instead of sitting there, like trying to judge people's ventures, um, which is never great because people have a lot of themselves invested in their ideas. And if you tell them their baby is ugly, I mean, it hurts, right? It's an uncomfortable conversation, even if it's true. Um, and so what I try and do now is I try and just give any students I'm working with the tools to figure it out on their own and then any kind of supports I can to help them along that process, right? So instead of me saying your idea is bad, 
you know, I encourage them to go out and get the data and figure out for themselves if it's good or bad. And then, you know, like update their priors based on validated knowledge. Um, you know, and some people never get there. They continue to think their ideas are a lot better than they <laughs> actually are. Um, but, you know, some people, you know, they come to the realization that their idea needs to change if it's going to be successful. Other people quit. Um, and then there's other ones where, you know, I was just sure that this was the dumbest idea to ever fall off a turnip truck. And, and it turns into something great, right? Like, you just, there's so much uncertainty around all this stuff you never know. So, you know, I've given up trying to call balls and strikes. Uh, you know, I just want to see data evidence and I want people to come to these conclusions on their own. Okay, I'm glad to know that that there is some hope for our entrepreneurship students in a sense. And you work with a lot of students, I think, from undergrad to MBA. Tell us about, I wouldn't say, okay, it'd be hard for me or it'd be terrible of me to ask you to pick favorites among the students that you work with. But tell us about some of your favorite stories in the sense of, of uh, working with these students. I know that you advise some of these student startups even after they're done with their classes in a sense. So tell me a bit, maybe one or two stories that you felt like the most, I would say, um, I wouldn't say impressed with, but the ones that were most impactful to you. The ones that I like the most are the ones where I keep in touch with the students. And then, I mean, so one of the myths about venture, just to rewind a little bit, is that it's a quick process where you have an idea, you go raise capital, you go to market, then you start to build and scale. Uh, I mean, in actual fact, like 90% of the, the entrepreneurs I've ever worked with they spend about, you know, a year, 18 months just in like, you know, dark development R&D mode where they're just trying to figure out if they can build a trap that'll catch mice. And so I, I really find it enriching uh, to stay in touch with students, you know, after I've taught a class, uh, you know, help them, you know, where I can as they, you know, continue their journey uh, and then see them succeed. And then I love having them back to be guest speakers in subsequent classes. So whenever I'm looking for a speaker, I always look to former students first because they can, you know, they can talk about what it was like to, to sit in that same seat and, you know, think they have it all figured out. And then, you know, actually go out and try and do something and get knocked around a bit, uh, you know, and actually have to you know, be gritty, resilient and, and make it happen. Um, so, you know, I've, I've ended up with some, some good friends uh, out of that process and, it's just so amazing and enriching to see, you know, what they managed to create. And I take very little credit for any of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always just so honored and humbled uh, when I can be a part of that journey where someone builds something great. Okay. That is heartwarming to hear and great to know that if we take a class, we'll hopefully bump into an alumni who literally was in our shoes at one point of time or another. So I guess for those who haven't signed up for your classes in the fall, this is the push for them to do that in a sense. Uh, and because I personally would definitely love to. Another question and kind of like I, I something else that I saw in another interview that you did, you mentioned that there is a segment of students that come in at the undergrad level at least who end up, I would say, um, and I joke about this all the time, but so many people come into to Penn as social entrepreneurs and they leave in finance and consulting. And then I saw you say something similar in an interview. I was like, okay, I've got to ask you about that in a sense. That is very heartbreaking for me as a social entrepreneur to see like a lot of my friends, we started out in freshman year, like in the same like stuff that we like. And then by kind of entering junior year, they've already decided, ah, oh, this isn't so, so much for me in a sense. And, and they go off into something 
that I think um, fits a bit more into kind of like the whole um, point of, or kind of the whole push that the, the, the ecosystem of recruiting is trying to get them into in a sense. Have you ever seen this among students in your class? And how do you, I, I would say, brace for the heartbreak of that? Or at the very least, what, what are your thoughts in, in kind of like people who want to be social entrepreneurs but maybe get influenced by external noise in that process? Yeah, I mean, it, like Taylor is as old as time at Penn, right? Like, you know, people come in, they want to change the world and they leave as, you know, cogs in the machine. Um, and, you know, more power to them, right? Like, you know, if I came in as an undergrad to Wharton, um, I am 90% confident that I would go out into finance, right? Because there's it, just so many pressures, right? Like you've been streamed towards that, uh, you know, the rewards are, are so high, right? Like the salaries are, you know, really nice straight out of school, you know, you get a bonus, all your friends are doing it. You go live in New York and just, you know, love life, right? So, you know, more power to them. If, if people want to do that, that that's great. And, uh, you know, I wish them all the best. Um, you know, the people who stick with social entrepreneurship are the ones that are the true believers, right? Because it is a massively hard path to go down. So starting any kind of venture is hard. And you're going to end up graduating and you'll be eating ramen noodles as your friends are living the high, <laughs> you know, with, with financing and consulting salaries in New York. <laughs> And then if you're doing something in social enterprise, you have the additional challenge of trying to build the social mission in, which could make the whole go to market tougher. Right. And so on the far end, you end up with social entrepreneurs who are doing something in the nonprofit space who have all of the grief, misery and hardship of trying to start something entrepreneurial. And then they don't even have the profit potential on the other side. Right. Like they're going to be eating ramen noodles for life, which is you know, <laughs> a personal choice is tough to make. But. You know, this is where you find really impactful stuff, right? Because it's people who are absolutely passionate about doing something that makes the world a better place. And so they stick with it, they grind, they adapt, they learn, and they actually end up building amazing things. And so, you know, you'd asked me uh, a little earlier about, you know, some gratifying stories of working with students. The ones that I get the most, most gratification out of are, you know, I've had the pleasure to be a faculty advisor to three teams of social entrepreneurs that have won the president's engagement prize. And, you know, these are students who have, you know, made the decision while they were at Penn to start something in the social entrepreneurship space, you know, consciously build a nonprofit. And then by the time they're graduating, they're sitting at the precipice of doing something really impactful. And then they get this little bit of money to do it with. Um, and they can go off and, you know, make a, an actual run at it. And I mean, for me, that's just amazing because these are people who are going to go out and change the world. And, you know, if all I do is just cheerlead and, you know, offer them my support, um, I love it. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a really amazing process to be close to. Well, I'm sure you do a lot more than that for them, but I, but I, but I understand the sentiment. That is amazing to hear in a way. We can't end this episode, I feel, if we don't talk about your research and the amazing things that you've done to, to uncover this world of social entrepreneurship. But I guess we have to start off with the one question that I think most people ask when it comes to social entrepreneurship is, is social entrepreneurship really profitable in a way? And I know the answer is yes, obviously, because I'm extremely biased towards social entrepreneurship. And if anyone says otherwise, they will be immediately exited from my call. But um, essentially, in a way, the question when social entrepreneurship essentially comes out is number one are those trade-offs and, and you said it yourself i think in some of your work that 
there's never an exactly reciprocal relationship between scale and, and, and impact in a sense. Your, your impact and scale is never exactly the same in a sense. And there will be pivots and positions where you have to make those trade-offs in a sense. How, in your opinion, in, in all of the work that you've done, do you think that number one, a social enterprise can, can navigate those trade-offs to be uh, as successful as it would be if it had just focused on the for-profit aspect of it and, and completely on the maximizing of profits? So it's a super interesting question. And I, I think the answer is kind of nuanced. So, I mean, you know, top line, yes, of course, you can have a very impactful business that creates uh, profits. Um, but you start to, to dig a little bit underneath that. And, you know, there's a lot of variance in social enterprises. So there's kind of like the right tail example. And, uh, you know, one of the people on the Wharton board of, it's not overseers anymore. I think it's the board of advisors now. Um, his name is Bobby Turner and he operates uh, Turner Impact Capital. And he has an amazing investment thesis that is also incredibly impactful. Right. And so, you know, his insight was if you take problems like, you know, poverty, uh, you know, bad education, health, um, you know, these aren't going away. Right. Housing is the other one he focuses on. And so if you can find a way to de-risk investments in these spaces, then, you know, you can get really nice investment adjusted returns. Right. Because you're creating things where there are, you know, good recurring revenue streams and the problem's not going away. <laughs> so there's a lot of demand, right? So there's a market. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of social entrepreneurial projects that, you know, Bobby funds through Turner Impact Capital that make a really wonderful return uh, financially and have a really high social impact. And so, I mean, that's right tail stuff, right? And you could put stuff like, you know, ed tech, some fintechs, um, you know, uh, green power, you know, kind of ventures over in that space. And they can be profit-seeking, right? <laughs> they could operate internally like any other profit-seeking organization, uh, but because their outputs are inherently beneficial, they create impact, right? Now, on the other end of the continuum, you have like a microfinance organization where the benefits of the microfinance loan only become unlocked if you have support programs for the borrowers, right? Like teach them how to start a venture, how to do basic bookkeeping, uh, you know, how to save money, you know, all of these these things that, you know, sort of are the mechanisms that would link, you know, little bits of finance, the little bits of, of actual impact. Well, I mean, this stuff is costly, right? So there is a direct trade-off in that context. And it gets tough, right? Because organizations that are like that, where they're, they're blending the mission, but the social mission is actually costly, you know, there's going to be times where you got to decide, right? Like, you know, am I going to make the decision now for the sustainability and the profitability of the organization? Or am I going to make it to have a higher impact? And this stuff gets tough, right? Um, you know, there's no easy answers. There's things that we found out in research that, uh, you know, can help organizations survive, you know, through these trials and tribulations. But, but it's tough, right? And then between the two continuums, you have all sorts of stuff, right? <laughs> Where there's varying degrees of tensions, trade-offs, you know, profits and impact. No, very, very real answer, I would say. If you had given just a yes or no answer, I think that that would not have worked as well as that in a sense. And you're right, there are many various degrees in between that navigated. You also published something, I think, a couple of years ago on essentially how communities have benefited from corporate giving in a sense. And, and how a, 
I, I would say corporations in, in their efforts of giving to relief funds, to, to supporting a lot of uh, the social and the necessities around the world have actually made up a huge portion of, 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 of relief aid and all that, which is amazing to hear. An argument that often comes to me, or at least that I often hear people say about social entrepreneurship is, or, or when they're choosing whether to pursue social entrepreneurship or directly profit-oriented entrepreneurship in a sense would be, I would just focus on building my business now and, and do that really, really well. And then when we're successful, we'll be able to give back more in a sense, instead of just going out from, from ground up as a social enterprise. That's an argument that I often hear. Uh, maybe I'm not arguing with the right people, uh, but um, what are your thoughts on that in a sense? And, and what do you think are the benefits or, or the, I would say the drawbacks of each option in a sense? It's a, it's a really good question. Um, this actually gets at a, a really fascinating line of research uh, that was catalyzed by a, a professor here at Penn named Phil Tetlock. And, uh, you know, the insight that came out of Phil's work, I mean, one stream of his work, because he's prolific, is that, you know, when you're doing something like social enterprise or anything where you're trying to combine goals that don't go easily together, uh, the longer you spend grappling with that, uh, the more nuanced your thinking becomes. And you go from thinking that's integratively simple, which is just like trade-off reasoning, right? Like if I have more of this, I have to accept less of that, uh, to more integratively, integratively complex ways of thinking. And so one way of thinking about the compatibility between like social and financially goals that is more integratively complex is to think about the temporal aspect, right? Which is exactly what uh, you know these people you're debating with are, are advocating for, right? Mm -hmm. So to get this off the ground, to actually start something that can sustain itself from an operational perspective, we can't have the social goal now. But once we get to a certain point, then we can unlock the potential to you know roll this piece in, right? Like the the, the risk with that strategy is you become path dependent and locked in on just the the financial side of things, and the social never comes. But, you know, high level, this is, you know, it can be pretty sophisticated thinking, right? You know, you can also think about, you know, the social and the financial can come together, but only if there's like some real innovation in both of them to make them symbiotic as opposed to conflicting. Or maybe it's, you know, you need to change some third variable. So, you know, you have social, you have financial, but the only way to make them play nicely with each other is to change the context where you're trying to mix them, right? So then the, you know, then the approach to the strategy is like you, you work on policy or education or other things that set the conditions up for the two goals to be put together, right? So it's a, it's not a bad strategy, right? Like, you know, like I said, there's some risk that you don't actually follow through on the second part. Um, but it, it can be a pretty nuanced and clever way of thinking about some tricky problems. Yeah, but I do know some amazing entrepreneurs who have been uh, who've never really given much thought to the social aspect of the work that they're doing. But then after five, six years of actually running an extremely successful business, and you know what, I'm going to pivot, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to add some social element to it, whether it's internally or whether it is in the embedded in the nature of the work that they do. And, and sometimes that's better off because now they have a deeper understanding in a sense for that community that they're serving. So it's easier for them to, to really bring out and, and do good for those people because they have the data, they have the support, they have the structures in place, and, and, and they've already had the position which they can do that. On the flip side, you also mentioned that there is a risk that these companies don't follow through on their stuff. You also did, I think, a recent business roundtable, I think about a year or so ago or, or a bit later, 
on, on the pandemic specifically, on how large corporations, on whether they followed up on, on, on kind of their, their commitments to helping people. And I think sometimes having a pandemic every now and then is a good thing because it gets you, you have a literal disaster and you can see how people reacted in, in, in a disaster in front of your eyes in a sense. Tell us a little bit about your findings in, in that arena in a sense. Did everyone really do exactly what they said they would? Did they pledge all of their leave? Or was there a bit of a leeway in, in that in a sense? <laughs> So can, can I swear on your podcast or is that like PG I'll, I'll, I'll keep it clean. Okay. Uh, it's no problem. No problem. <laughs> You'll understand where I was going with this in a second. Um, yeah. So I, the business roundtable stuff was interesting because I mean, I had been curious for a while whether or not this, you know, big commitment where, you know, the roundtable signatories you know, said that they were going to, you know, like change the meaning of, of shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. Uh, you know, was that actually worth more than the paper it was written on? And so, you know, when the pandemic struck, we started to gather data on what the corporate responses were. And there's there some interesting variance within the different signatories to the roundtable statement. Um, but the punchline was, you know, the overall effect was, you know, signatories to this statement were not nearly as responsive uh, you know, following, you know, like the initial lockdowns with COVID in responding to stakeholder needs, right? So, you know, despite all of their lofty rhetoric about, you know, capitalism is about serving all stakeholders and we have to be responsive to them, they were uh, the least stakeholder oriented in their responses. Um, now, the one nuance which is interesting is that the signatories to this statement that did not have a history of stock buybacks uh and high dividends uh they behaved more like non-signatory firms they actually responded pretty well when the pandemic oh. hit but the ones that you know had spent a lot of time and a lot of money just trying to generate shareholder wealth they're like batting down the hatches like we don't know what's going on we got to protect our shareholders uh you know and stakeholders sort of you know you're on your own here and so it was kind of a, a dispiriting set of findings, but in some ways it kind of makes sense, right? Like if you analogize, you know, like a, an individual person to a company and it's the analogy only stretches so far, but it's not bad for this purpose. Um, but imagine, you know, you've been eating junk food your entire life and then you make this proclamation. You tell all your friends and your family, I am on a diet. I'm going to start doing well. I realized that my, my previous diet was unsustainable uh, and I need to do better. And I'm pledging to it uh, very publicly. And then two days later, you know, your, your aunt dies. It's like, oh, my God. I mean, this is awful. You know, what do I do? I'm so stressed. And then you eat a bag of Oreos, right? Because it's your fallback, right? Like you default to the earlier behavior patterns. And I, and I think that's what was going on with the roundtable signatories, right? You know, we picked up some evidence that immediately after signing that declaration, you know, there was an uptick in the amount of stakeholder focused rhetoric on like earnings calls. Right. So they were at least talking the talk. But then when COVID happens, I think it makes total sense that they defaulted the past behaviors like, oh, my God, like, you know, the world. Yeah, is falling apart. Yeah. And then, you know, what do you do? You do what you did before. Right. Because you don't know any other way. And so you see this, uh, you know, really big snapback effect. You know, we, we need to get tighter around that mechanism and see if that's really what was driving it. But that's, you know, sort of that's my hypothesis right now. No, that that is very fascinating as a piece of, 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 of I would say, uh, 
it, it's kind of a, a deep dive into what's happening, not just in terms of, of, uh, of the people, but also in terms of the culture of organizations and how that, that plays through. And as we wind down this, this session, one of the things that I'm very curious of is we see right now, and, and again, I think this is something that you've mentioned in your previous sessions, that there is a huge rise in awareness about how companies should participate and give back to the communities that support them in one way or another, whether that's through an ESG focus, whether that is uh, through their relief focuses, or whether there are, it's a call for more social enterprises to be formed in, at the grassroots level. I feel like all around, um, especially Gen Zs, they are demanding companies have their social responsibility in check. But at the same time, for many corporations, that's not the current culture that is in place. That they get, and of course, that that's nothing wrong with that in a sense. They they were alive, for, or at least they've been running for like some of them hundreds of years, even. So obviously, they're doing something right. But that's just a, a cultural, I would say, mismatch with what's happening with the new people who are very vocal about how their company should be and the current culture of companies out there. And I am a total pessimist in this, but I believe that with the rate the world is headed, we may have to anticipate more and more disasters at some level or another, whether that's in climate, whether it's a, another pandemic, a zombie apocalypse, I don't know. But I believe that there will be opportunities for us to, to see that that conflict come out in a sense. Where do you think the world is headed in terms of, um, number one, the formations of social enterprises? Do you think this is going to be the next way businesses should be run? Or is this a trend that will phase out? And what do you think this means for existing companies out there who are maybe not as competitive and maybe not as socially responsible? So, uh, you know, soothsaying is tough because there's so much uncertainty, <laughs> but I mean, here's my take on it. Um, I can tell you like the state of affairs now and how I see this generalizing. So shortly after I got tenure, uh, I wanted to get a fix on what the level of excitement about like social enterprise was uh, among student entrepreneurs uh, and not even student entrepreneurs that necessarily define themselves as social entrepreneurs, but students who were seriously starting ventures, I wanted to understand what their goals were, right? Like how many of them were like I was when I was that age, you know, just want to, you know, create private wealth uh, versus, you know, who's more like, you know, the way I see the world in enterprise these days, which is, you know, like, let's see if we can do both in some way that, you know, creates a, a personally fulfilling balance for the entrepreneur. And I was blown away because 70% uh, of the founders that I, uh, I got in touch with uh, and it was the, the full sample of everyone who had gone through any of the co-curricular venture programs here at Penn. So like the VIPC, VIPX, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so over 70% of them said that they had defined social goals in their enterprise and were as interested in creating social impact as they were in creating profit. Now, there's going to be some social desirability in those responses, right? And it's not perfectly predictive of how people will behave when their back's against the wall and they have to make decisions about, you know, day-to-day -day operations of the venture. But what it tells me loud and clear is there is a lot of interest in this as something that articulates with, you know, the whole self, right? And so I, I really see, I mean, especially amongst the entrepreneurs that I'm excited to work with, they want to bring more than just, you know, sort of this financial professional aspect to their work, right? And that's what draws them to entrepreneurship, right? They call the shots and they can do it the way they want. And so they can infuse their values, morals and ethics into the organization and try and create some impact uh, in a way that would be harder to do in an established organization. 
so I think that that's going to continue. And I think that to the extent we can build out ecosystem supports that help people with that, it's only going to encourage it. You also see, you know, the, the big tailwind being, you know, a lot of, you know, ESG investing, but more importantly, like impact investing and impact BC, where there are pots of capital now and big growing pots of capital uh, that are being dedicated to supporting socially impactful businesses. Now, there's a lot of greenwashing in this space, a lot of impact washing, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you have money that's plunking down, actually making bets on ventures where one of the screens is, you know, what's the impact? This is a good thing, right? And it's going to encourage more people to try and, you know, go down that path. So I think, uh, you know, a, a good thing, and I think, you know, sort of the, the macro trends are lining up behind an increase in social enterprise, uh, at least in the immediate future. Okay. Uh, I shall rejoice. Any other critics of social enterprise may weep from your soothsaying. And final question before we end for today. And, and let me just say, I am personally having so much fun in this interview that I'm, I'm very sad that we're at almost the end. But final question in a sense, for all social entrepreneurs watching right now, um, what do you think they need to actually succeed? Well, I mean, they need all the same stuff that traditional entrepreneurs need. Uh, they just need a, a, you know, some special versions of it, right? Like they need mentors, advisors. They obviously need, you know, to have an idea, a team. Uh, they need financial resources. Um, but what they need really is, you know, an ecosystem that's designed to support them and the goals that they're going after, as opposed to, you know, them trying to sort of fit their square peg in the round hole of the, you know, the profit-seeking venture supporting ecosystem right so there's a lot of supports that are out there for traditional entrepreneurs um but i think that you know what social entrepreneurs need to succeed is those those dedicated resources right they need you know support and training for how to you know understand what their impact is how to measure it assess it make sure that they're actually creating impacts as opposed to just assuming they're creating them and then then maybe not or even doing some harm which you've seen some social enterprises do um, and you need people who can help them understand how their goals articulate with each other, where they're symbiotic, where they pull apart, and where the trip lines might be as they try and actually grow and scale these ventures. So uh, I, I'm optimistic that this stuff is getting built. And I mean, you know, my final comment here would be, you know, the undergrads, especially at a place like Penn, are, are uniquely well equipped to do this because just as sort of a class of people you know, so smart, ambitious, hardworking, and socially conscious. Um, it's a tough path, but when you have smart people who are willing to walk down it, great things can happen. All right. Well, thank you. And I like that last point on, you know, it's not about fitting into the existing resources, but finding those that actually support the work that you do it and, and enhance it and be able to see that impact. Um, beyond just the predictions that we don't have on it. And I hope that all of the social entrepreneurs and students watching this are inspired to continue their track in this world of uh, crazy world of entrepreneurship, specifically with the focus of doing good. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. I hope that you had as much fun as me and our audience listening to you. And like, I really appreciate you taking your time to do this. Oh, my pleasure. It was great to be a part of this, Harsha. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, you know, I really did enjoy our chat. All right. And with that, hopefully our audience did too. And if you guys enjoyed today's show, please let us know in the comments, give us a like. And if you guys uh, would like to tune into more amazing sessions like this, remember we're on every Thursday at 10 p.m. ET.
Till then, bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.